Please, if you would, turn to Jonah chapter 4, where we read from just a moment ago. We will read the text again in just a moment, as we really want to think about the Word and what it tells us and teaches us. Now, we are in the fourth chapter of, of this book of the prophet Jonah, a book that we know well. We, uh, if we were in church or in Christian families, we grew up with this story. We've talked about that each week. It's a story that we are familiar with in one sense and completely unfamiliar with in another. It's a book that we have a lot of assumptions about that are wrong or maybe we've been mistaught. It's not blaming anyone. It's just the reality of it. Uh, many of the books that are given to children, many of the cartoons and stuff about Jonah teach Jonah wrong. Uh, I, as I mentioned here, the VeggieTales at one time uh, were videos that almost every Christian kid watched. And in it, Jonah's afraid to go to Nineveh. He fears going to Nineveh. Why? I believe in that he's going to get slapped in the face with a fish or something is what he's worried about. But again, it's fear. But that isn't at all what the Bible says. The Bible does not say Jonah feared to go because he feared man. As we tried to say along the way, that dishonors in a way uh, Jonah as a prophet because Jonah was a prophet in the wicked northern kingdom of Israel. He confronted kings. He preached the message of repentance likely in the northern kingdom, a place it was very dangerous to be a prophet. Most of those prophets were persecuted or even killed. What could Nineveh do to him that Jeroboam II couldn't do? So again, that's wrong to think that way. That isn't what Jonah himself says was his objection to going to Nineveh. Now we've been previewing what that objection will be, but today we hear it firsthand on why Jonah says, This God is why I did not want to go. Is this not what I said when I was in my own home country? Did I not say, This is exactly what you would do, O God? So as we think about this today, we want to think about the, the story of Jonah. He runs from the presence of God, that covenantal presence of God in, amongst his people in the land of promise. God chases after him. He cannot run from God's presence. He knows he cannot hide from God, but neither can he really run from the presence of God because the Bible says God throws a storm at him. It's interesting wording, isn't it? He throws the storm and it puts not only Jonah in danger, but the ship and all who are on it. And they want to know what's going on. Why is this happening? They cast lots. They, they seek it out and they find out that it's because of Jonah. And Jonah tells them, it is because of me. It's because I am running from God. I have disobeyed God. And it is for that reason that this storm has come upon all of us. That's why we're at death's door. And there's only one way you can end this. And that's to throw me over the side of this ship. Give me up to God. And let my life be accounted for of me and they don't want to do that do they we've talked about that they do everything they can to keep from throwing Jonah over the side they try to steer toward the shore which we talked about uh, a seaman would never want to do that a mariner would know that's dangerous to try to steer in a storm toward the rocks and yet that's what they try to do but God will not allow it God pushes them out to sea again by the storm and they finally realize because the storm is intensifying and intensifying that the ship is about to break apart and they will all be killed. And so they pray to Jonah's God. They pray to Jehovah now. And they say, Oh, Jehovah, oh, God, we don't want this man's blood charged to our head. We know that we see no other way out of this other than to offer him back to you. So we're going to do this. But please, oh, God, don't charge this to our account, for we know that you do whatsoever pleases you. And they throw Jonah over the side and the storm calms at once. Confirmation. Confirmation that Jonah was the source of the problem. 
And we said this each week because, again, we have the, the blessing of having heard this story over and over. We know how it ends, but if you're reading it for the first time, where are you at at the end of chapter 1? You're thinking, Jonah's a goner, right? Jonah's dead. Jonah thought he was going to die. The sailors thought Jonah was going to die. There's only one person in the story who knew otherwise, and that is God. And it tells us that God had prepared a fish to swallow Jonah. And that's exactly what he did. Even in this moment, God has prepared, working ahead, to rescue Jonah from the deep. Now we come to the prayer in chapter 2 that reminds us of a prayer not recorded in Scripture that Jonah gave as he was sinking down further and further and further. He cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, save me. From the abyss, from Sheol, the place of the dead, save me from the the deep. This is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cried to you, Lord, hear my voice of pleading. This is the very thing that we looked at. Jonah is praying the Psalms and God responds to his cry in faith. This fish God already prepared ahead of time swallows Jonah and is a method, if you will, of deliverance for Jonah. You remember at the end of chapter 2, we had a sermon on the day Brother Franklin was baptized uh, called the sign of Jonah. Because Jesus looks back to these events, doesn't he? They ask for a sign. He says, no, no sign shall be given to you except for one, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what is that sign? He says, for as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man shall be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. But praise God, Jonah's three days in the belly of the fish didn't end with him dying there, did it? That's the point, right? Jonah was spit out, rescued from death, given life again as a picture that he may go fulfill the mission of God to take this message to the Gentiles. Well, that sign is fulfilled in Christ who goes into the heart of the earth, but he doesn't stay there. He rises again to life, resurrected life, on this mission to take the gospel, if you will, to the Gentile world. And so all that's what we've been looking at. We see Jonah then get commissioned again to go to Nineveh, and he goes a second time, or he goes this time for the first time. He obeys the second call to go to Nineveh. He goes and he proclaims this message. Now, we talked about this last week. We don't know exactly what he said. The Bible gives us probably some shorthand, but it may be exactly what he preached. In 30 days' time, Nineveh shall be overthrown. We talked about the significance of the wording in Hebrew there of overturn. Overthrown could also mean to be turned around. But regardless, he's making this prophetic word and the evil Ninevites. Anybody living in that day would have said the worst human beings on earth, the most murderous, whatever term you want to use, they would fill it. Rapists and murderers, torturers of their enemies, Terrible people, God delivers them. They repent, they hear the word, they believe the word of God, they repent. Even their king takes off his royal garb, his robe, he puts on sackcloth, he leaves his throne and goes down into the ashes to repent before God. And it says, God saw their works, that they turned from their evil ways, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. He did not do it. We talked about that wording last week, did God change his mind? No. That's worded that we might understand the sequence of events here. But God knew they would repent from the very beginning. He sees the end from the beginning. God isn't surprised by any of these things. Now, what is Jonah's response to this? 
I'm just going to put my guess if I'd never read this again before, right? Jonah's elated, right? Jonah is thrilled. What preacher would not be thrilled at seeing this kind of success from his preaching? Surely it's what we're going to read. Jonah is thrilled to death by what God has uh, allowed him to participate in. Well, let's find out what the scriptures say. Starting at the verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the eastern side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and he made it to cover up Jonah that it might shade, uh, be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened that when the sun arose, God prepared a vehement eastern wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, Is it right for me to be angry? It is right for me to be angry even to death, Jonah responds. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have taken no labor, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Now it ends kind of abruptly there, doesn't it? But as we think about it for a moment, I want us to look at three points. First of all, Jonah's surprising response. Second of all, God's revealing activity. And third, God's amazing grace. Because I believe these are important things. And actually, I'm just noticing a note I made to myself twice. Once in my bulletin and once on my notes here. Uh, and that's that we have cards on this first table as you go out. Please make sure you sign them today because they go out to our shut-ins this week. I'm going to finally remember to say that. All right, we come first to Jonah's surprising response. As we said a moment ago, we might expect a man of God to rejoice. To rejoice at seeing what Jonah has just seen. You know, we as preachers, we prepare, we, we bring a word, we pray that it will be used by God. We know He promises that not, never will His word return void. It does what it sets out to do. But there are times where God's word goes out in such a way that the results are incredible. Right? Only God can do that. We know that. That's a movement of the Holy Spirit. But when those things happen, when you see movement whether it's amongst the people of God toward revival or whether it's toward non-believers in terms of awakening, whatever it may be, we rejoice in those things. We rejoice in them. We see times in history where that happens. We can't explain it. You know, one of the things that's often said about Jonathan Edwards when he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, he preached it in his church first to no effect. Did he rewrite it? Nope. Did he deliver it differently? No, Jonathan Edwards delivered every sermon the exact same way. He typed out a full manuscript and he read it from the pulpit. 
That's what he did. But he went to another church and preached that message, and they said halfway through, people began to clutch the pew in front of them so tightly, their knuckles turned white. And people began to get out of the pews however they could to reach the front of the church, crawling if need be. How do you explain that? It's not the delivery of Jonathan Edwards, is it? It's the power of God moving in that place and that time, awakening people who do not know the gospel and reviving the hearts of His people who maybe have long since grown cold toward the truth of God. But the truth is, we long for those moments. Look at what happened just last month in Asbury, Kentucky, right? As just the possibility of revival happened, people came from all over the country just to be a part of it. Just the possibility that it might happen was enough to draw people from Alaska and California and Arizona and New York and certainly even from our own area. So my friends, we would imagine Jonah would be thrilled. I don't like the Ninevites. I didn't want God to do this. But now that he has, what a glorious thing has happened. These people are repenting of their sin. They're turning from their evil ways. They're acknowledging the one true living God. They are crying out to him and he is delivering mercy to them. But again, that isn't Jonah's reaction at all. Jonah's reaction is, first of all, notice that it says that he is exceedingly displeased. This isn't what Jonah wanted. He didn't want revival. He knew revival was going to take place if he went, or I should say awakening. It's not really revival. These aren't God's people. He didn't want this to happen. It's why he didn't want to go in the first place, because he knew God would work in just this way. My friends... If you think about it just for a moment, it should have been an honor for him to be called by God to do this, and now he's sitting here displeased by it and even angry. It's not just enough to say he's displeased. He's angry with God at what God is doing. Now, my friends, there is no place in this book that Jonah is portrayed as anything other than a man of God. So this is a wake-up call to us. We can be displeased by what God is doing. We can be angry at what God is doing. And God is reminding us in this word to not be. Right? We're in the wrong because we don't see the big picture of what God is at work to do. We recognize that it is hard sometimes to walk by faith and not by sight. We walk like walking by sight because we see the beginning, but we can't see the end. And God assures us that he sees the end from the beginning, and therefore we can trust that he is knowing what shall come to pass, and knowing that it will all work together for good, as he's promised in Romans 8. It will all work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So he says, trust me in this. Trust me in this. And Jonah says, I don't really trust you in it, God, because I know what you're going to do, and I don't like what you're going to do. And you're going to tell me that it works out for good, but I don't like what it's going to work out toward. Because in the end of the day, you're saving these Ninevites whom I hate. And they're going to put my people in danger because the prophetic word's already coming that the northern kingdom will be dealt with by Assyria. I don't know if Jonah thinks he can give God advice. I know sometimes I've been guilty of that, you know. God, if you could just realize what I'm telling you here, right? The Assyrians are not going to stay good. Even if they repent now, they're going to come and destroy your people. And God says, I know. My people deserve judgment. It's kind of the thing we see elsewhere about the Babylonians, right? 
as God's prophet wrestles with, how are you going to judge uh, Judah? And he says, I'm going to use the Chaldeans. And he says, God, how can you do that? How can you use the Chaldeans to judge your people? The Chaldeans are worse than us. God says, don't worry, trust me, I'm going to deal with them as well. Do you trust God that much? This is where we have to walk by faith, and it isn't easy. Jonah should not be overly criticized. He is worthy of criticism. Please understand me, but notice this in our own hearts at times, that we're struggling with what God is doing. We're struggling to to be a part of it, sometimes maybe even unwillingly a part of it, as Jonah is here. He has come to Nineveh to proclaim the word, but he didn't do it because he wanted to. He did it because he had to, because he was brought there by the power of God. And so he does do this. But again, this is what he worried all along would happen. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says that he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, and by the way, how about this? If you want to see a great response, if there's any turnaround in Jonah at all, begin here. Chapter 1, Jonah doesn't like what God says, so he flees. Now he doesn't like what God is doing, so he prays. That is progress, right? That is some progress. But look what he prays. Oh, Lord, I knew this is what you were going to do. Is this not what I said when I was in my home country? In other words, if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty of this, he says, I was not afraid to go to Nineveh. I didn't fear the Ninevites. What I feared was your gracious nature, God. I feared that you would extend mercy to them, and I didn't want you to do that. I knew if I came here that you would do this, and I did not want you to do this. In fact, look at what Jonah bases it on, what he says about God. He says, because I know that you are what? A gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. God is a righteous and holy God. He is a God of judgment, but he is also a God of mercy and love and grace. And Jonah knows this, and Jonah knows If they repent of their sin, if God does this work amongst them, they repent of their sin, He will relent from destroying them. And I'm not comfortable with that. That's what Jonah is saying. I'm not happy with that. Now, what he said here for a moment ago about God being gracious and merciful, where does he get this from? Well, Jonah knows the Word of God. He's been praying the Word of God. He knows the Psalms. He knows the law of Moses. He knows all of this. And he's basically quoting from Exodus 34. Listen to what it says in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He's quoting from Exodus 34, not all of it, but a good chunk of it about the mercy and the graciousness of God, that He's long-suffering, that He is abundant in loving kindness. That's what he's quoting from. Now, one of the things I always say is when there's a quotation of Scripture, go back to the passage and read the larger passage. Almost always there's a clue to what's going on in the bigger passage of Scripture. What is the argument here? Well, think for a moment because if you go back to this whole passage, God has delivered Israel out of captivity in Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, given them the revelation of His law, called them to be His people, called Moses up the mount to talk with Moses. And when Moses comes down in chapter 32, what does he find? 
the people engaged in idolatry. In fact, God warns him, go down there. You won't believe what Aaron's up to. Aaron has built this golden calf. They're worshiping it. Aaron says, behold your God. It's unbelievable that that happens. Moses comes down. God brings judgment. All these things happen. And then as we come into the next chapter, our God says something interesting to Moses as Moses is on the mount with him again. And I think it's a key reminder of what God is doing here. And what we're supposed to remember when we think back to this passage. Paul brings it up in Romans as well. Exodus thirty-three nineteen, right between this idolatry which Israel engaged in, for which it should have been wiped out, but God showed mercy upon Israel, and the chapter that is closing in which God claims Himself to be merciful and long-suffering and gracious. In between there, 33, 19, God says, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Jonah, you're quoting chapter 34. Did you miss chapter 33? God says, I decide who I show mercy to. You don't decide for me, Jonah. You do not decide whether the Ninevites are delivered. I decide if the Ninevites are delivered. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So when Jonah quotes Exodus 34, please do not make the mistake of thinking he isn't aware of the fullness of this. That he doesn't know this is ultimately up to God. We said from from the very first chapter of this book, Jonah does not think he can somehow stop God from doing what God wills to do. I think Jonah just thinks, I don't have to be a part of it. Let somebody else do this. Let somebody else go to these evil people and preach this message. If God wants to deliver them, let somebody else. But I won't be the one to go. I won't be the one to go. He's about as far from the example of Isaiah as we can find, right? Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. Jesus says, I came about my Father's will. Right? We have example after example throughout Scripture's Uh, none greater, obviously, than Jesus, of those who come to do the will of the Father. And what we find with Jonah is, I don't want to do the Father's will in this case. I don't want to do this because I don't like what it is. I don't like what it is. So we see this. Now, I think uh, when you see that he was afraid of God showing mercy to the Ninevites, there's another clue given to us in this section that speaks to his feeling on this, uh, which is that he says, when I was in my own country... Jonah's very much thinking about Israel separate from the rest of the world. We are God's covenantal people. He selected us out of all the nations of the earth. He set us apart as unique. We're not like the Assyrians. Why would God give this mercy and grace and working of the Spirit to them? You know, he had already used Jonah to prophesy. We read this in the first week that the borders of the northern kingdom would be re-expanded to a previous glorious age. Maybe Jonah's thinking, why don't you do this work in the northern kingdom? Our people need it, God. Our people have turned away from you. Our kings are wicked. Our kings do evil continually in your sight. God, turn to us. Certainly Jonah knew that his people needed it as much as the Assyrians certainly would think that. If you go back to the context of what happens in the Exodus account, He says this, um, speaking of Moses here. Moses says, If I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Now think about this for a minute. What would be his charges against the Assyrians? They're idolaters. 
Well, go back and read chapter 32, right? Well, they are a wicked people. Well, read 1 Kings 14. Whatever you want to say about the Assyrians that makes them worthy of judgment, they're stiff-necked, they will not bow down to the glory of God. Well, Moses said the same thing about Israel. They're sinners, they're full of iniquity, and God has shown grace to them. Why does Jonah not see that? Again, I think this is kind of a blind spot for him. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But as you think about this, he seems very angry. As uh, Hugh Martin says, he wants to go out into the the desert now, right away from the city now, and sit up on a hill and watch what will take place. Now, he already sees repentance. He already sees God's judgmental hand at least having 40 days or, you know, bearing a time that before this judgment falls. But maybe he thinks God will change his mind. I don't know what Jonah's thinking, but he's going to go out and watch what happens, I think, hoping maybe God will destroy this city. And he goes out there and... He comes to this place that he finds, a place where he can rest. But don't forget that Jonah is so miserable that he calls out to God to kill him. God, let me die. I'd rather die than live. And this brings us to our second point because God is at work to sanctify his prophet as much as he is to save or deliver the Ninevites from this current destruction. And so God asked Jonah a question. The first one is, is it right, Jonah, for you to be angry? Now, this word in the Hebrew means God is asking Jonah to look within himself and evaluate if it's just, if it's fitting, if it's appropriate for him to be angry. Now, this could be God saying, is it, is it right to be this angry at what I'm doing and saving the Ninevites? Or it could mean, is it appropriate for you to second-guess me, Jonah? The text doesn't really tell us uh, what, the, what the real point here is. It could be both. You're second-guessing God and you're unhappy with what he is uh, ordained to do. Now, is that ever right? Is that ever safe? And I think the answer is it is not. And again, we can go back to look at the very text that he's thinking of here and say that God has already said that he is in the saving business. It's not Jonah's responsibility to figure out who ought to be saved. And wherever we see in the scripture somebody saying, we'll decide, it always ends toward evil, doesn't it? Think about the in the New Testament, the Judaizers, we've been looking at them in our Sunday school in, in Galatians, who are the ones saying, no, 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 this can't go to the Gentiles. They have to become Jews, and then salvation can go to them. And Paul says, what of such a doctrine? Call them accursed, accursed anathema. This is serious. And so again, we see a warning here. But what we also see here is Jonah saying, I'm still going to plant myself here and wait and see what happens And so did you notice what the text says? It says he built himself a shelter. He built himself a shelter. Now this word in the Hebrew is sukkah, and it comes from the word sukkoth, which if you've studied the Bible, you may remember is the word for tabernacle. He built himself a tabernacle. Now in a book that is full of wordplay, that can't be a coincidence. Because what did the tabernacle represent? The abiding presence of God amongst his covenantal people right? So Jonah, in the midst of this, finds comfort and security in a tabernacle, right? In the covenantal symbol of the people of Israel. That can't be a coincidence here. The author is trying to tell us again that what he wants here is for God to prefer this covenantal relationship that he has with Israel. Well, 
In one sense he does. It is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But he's showing us already here that God has made a promise to Abraham to take the gospel beyond the physical borders of Israel. That through Abraham's seed all nations shall be blessed. So again, he's calling on him to remember this, but, but he's having an issue here. He thinks this salvation is for the sons of Jacob only, not for the Ninevites. And God is telling him, you've missed the point. You've missed the promises that I've made. You've missed the covenantal agreements that I've made. So Jonah was displeased. And then notice what God does. God doesn't leave it at just this tabernacle. God raises up a plant. He appointed a plant, it says. Now notice what all God has appointed. He appointed a storm, right? He appointed a fish. He now appoints a plant, and this plant will grow very quickly and cover Jonah, cover even the tabernacle, a second layer, if you will, of protection, even over that to keep the sun from beating down on him. We're in what is today northern Iraq. This is not a cool place geographically, is it? This is a very hot place, and he's sitting out in the sand just outside town. It's a desert And he's in the sun. The sun will kill you in conditions like that. So he built a tabernacle to shade himself a little bit. God puts this plant over top of that to protect Jonah. And it says what? Jonah is greatly pleased by this. Greatly pleased by this. It delivers him from his misery. The heat oppressing down upon him. He's very grateful for the plant. But that isn't all that God has appointed, is it? Because the very next morning, God appoints a worm a worm to attack that plant, to cause it to wither away. You all have seen this happen, haven't you? This is something that anybody can recognize. If a worm attacks a plant, it withers up and dies. This happens very quickly, and Jonah is angry. Why did this worm have to come? Here I'm in the sun again. Uh, The sun's beating down on me. I feel faint. This is terrible. But God appoints something else too, doesn't he? You see, the book of Jonah never wants you to think these things are just natural phenomenons. God is at work in all these things. He appoints a vehement eastern wind. Now, in the desert, these winds blow. They come with hot air, not cooling air, hot air. And not only do they come with hot air, they come with sand in them, blowing in your face, beating you down, literally. You feel over hours and hours like your sun, you're sandblasted. You just get withered down and your skin gets irritated and you feel miserable. Talk to any man who's been in Iraq in in military service in the last couple decades, they'll tell you about winds like this. If you've ever lived out in California, you may remember the Santa Ana winds, which are very similar to this. They blow in with hot air, right? And, And it causes a lot of discomfort. But again, here what you see is Jonah getting beaten down. God is taking away the comforts that Jonah has had, that God gave him. He's taking them away, and now he's beating down his prophet. To what purpose? To bring him to a point where it might be possible that he would be humbled. Jonah, still clutching on to his misery, says, it's better now for me to die than to live. He's already said that once. He means it, I believe. He'd be very happy for God to strike him down dead at this point. But God has a lesson to teach his prophet. So so what is it? God comes back to him and says, you've had pity on this plant for which you have not labored. So he's asking him, first of all, he asked him this. 
Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Is it right? Is it appropriate? It's the same kind of question. Search within yourself, Jonah. Is it appropriate? Is it fitting for you to be upset that this plant has died? Now, what does God mean here? It's in, implicit in the text. Was it your plant, Jonah? No. Did you plant it? No. Did you tend to it at all that it might grow? No. You didn't water it? No. You didn't do anything for this plant. It came up in a single night and it died in a single night. It's here and gone. It wasn't something you'd had many years sitting under with fond memories of times relaxing under this plant. Maybe you've got a tree like that in your yard that has brought comfort for years. But no, it's not like that at all. It was here one day and gone the next. And you mourn this plant being gone. So much so that you say it'd be better for you to die than to live. And that's what he says. It is right for me to be angry even to death. A dangerous bad attitude here for God's prophet, isn't there? Yeah, God, it's right that I'm angry. In fact, it's, it's right that I'd be angry even to the point of death. Now, at this point, God shows his mercy. And that's our third point today. He shows his mercy. He teaches about his grace. Because he uses an argument that we're familiar, from, familiar with in the scriptures. It's a comparative, contrasting argument. It's how much more then. Have you heard this before? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, If you being evil know how to give your children good gifts, how much more does your heavenly Father? What does he mean? Who isn't evil? Right? There's another parable where a woman wants justice. She goes and knocks on the door of a judge time and again, time and again. Bothers him time and again. And it says, for wanting rid of her, more or less, the judge gives her what she wants. Now, what's the point there? It's not God's an unrighteous judge or a corrupt judge. The point is, if a corrupt human being will eventually, for many askings, give you what you want, how much more will your righteous and loving Heavenly Father, how much more then will God do what's right? This is the argument that is used with Jonah. Jonah, you had pity on a plant for which you have not labored. You've done nothing for this plant. You didn't make it grow. It came up in a night and it perished in a night. It was here and gone like that. You did nothing to tend to this plant. And yet you pity it being gone. Well, here's God's question for Jonah. How much more then should I pity Nineveh, that great city? We've talked about this, great in its wickedness, great in its size. And look at the reasoning that God gives. In which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left. Now, 120,000 persons in an ancient city is tremendous. Would have been one of the leading cities in the world. And it depends on how you interpret that next phrase, who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, in some ancient writings, this is referring to children. So it'd be saying there's 120,000 innocent children in this city, and you'd have me destroy it. But there are references in the Old Testament to this phrasing, who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and it's referring to adults. So we don't know. But he's saying at least 120,000 people live in the city, you would have it wiped out. It's like when the disciples are going through Samaria, Jonah's area. And they say, should we call down fire and just destroy this place? And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you are of. 
You don't know what you're saying. You have no idea what you're saying when you just want to condemn that many people to death. You are not God, Peter. You are not God, James. This is God's business. Realize and humble yourselves a little bit. How about you, O Jonah? Humble yourself just a little bit. Who are you to condemn even if it's only 120,000 people to death? Who do you think you are to just overlook all this life? And you pitied a little plant. Now think about this. 120,000 human beings just done away with. And you're worried about a little plant. You're mourning the passing of a little insignificant plant. And this is why God says at the end, and much livestock. In other words, and how much livestock exists in this city? In other words, you wouldn't blame the animals for the sin of Nineveh, but you wouldn't even mind destroying the animals of Nineveh. This is not to say the Ninevites are not important. It's to show the ridiculous nature of Jonah's argument. Surely the livestock are innocent, but you just slaughter them without any thought. And then I want you to notice something. The text ends. No response from Jonah. No record of what goes on after this. No record of if Jonah repented, if Jonah saw the wisdom of what God was saying, if it took a while. No record at all. We're left right there in it. Now I think we can say very likely that Jonah did come to see the wisdom of God because Jonah probably wrote this book. And included all the sordid details of everything that he said. All the ways he argued against God are recorded here for us to see as a repentant man would do and say, man, I was stupid. Man, that was folly. Man, what was I thinking? Don't follow in this pathway. I want to say in a moment, in fact, I'll just say it now, I think that this set a good record for Israel moving forward. They didn't always learn from it. We have many in the New Testament days that are like, God cannot possibly want this blessing to go to the Gentiles, to the nations. But you have one, right, Peter, who is called what? Simon bar Jonah, the son of Jonah. We talked about this last week. Is that literal or is Jesus speaking figuratively? We don't know. We don't know who he's speaking of, but he may be saying, you are like your father Jonah. In many ways, by the way. Let's recount them one more time. Where is Peter when God calls him to go to the Gentiles? He's on a rooftop in Joppa, the city that Jonah went to. Where is Jonah not wanting to go? He's not wanting to go to the Gentiles. He feels it would be wrong for God to do that. God is going to call Peter to go to the Gentiles, to go to Cornelius' house and preach the gospel. Peter is going to say no probably to that. How do we know that? Because when that vision comes to Peter, that sheet with all those unclean foods comes down and Peter is told to take up and eat, what does he say? No, I would never do this, God. God says, do not call unclean that which I've called clean. And at this moment, the messenger comes from Cornelius telling him, beckoning him to come and preach to these Gentiles. And Peter recognizes this isn't a coincidence. God is calling me to go into the house of the Gentiles and preach the gospel. Even though an hour ago I would have said no because they're an unclean people, now I realize do not call them unclean. God has called me to go to them. Has he learned from Jonah's example? Maybe. 
But Peter goes and he preaches. And the Holy Spirit falls upon those Gentiles mid-sermon. God delivers them and then Peter defends baptizing them. He says, when the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he did us, I knew what? Who am I to withstand God? The difference between Jonah and the son of Jonah is, Jonah withstood God in that moment, and Peter said, who am I to withstand God? I pray the lesson of Jonah might have been learned, at least by some. So I want to close with this. Why is the story ended? Just like this, just abruptly. Because in a way, the question's left for us, isn't it? What will we answer? Jonah's not going to answer for us. We don't get an easy out. What will our answer be? When God does something we don't like, when God takes salvation to maybe a people we don't like, when God moves in a way that we're not expecting or don't approve of, as if we sit in judgment over God, what is our response to be? Are we going to be like Jonah and say, no, I'm not going to be for this? Or are we going to be like the son of Jonah and see who am I to withstand God? I think about Paul in Romans where he says, Who are you, O man, to argue with God? Who are you to argue with God? Sometimes we need humbling. God loved Jonah and humbled Jonah. One of the things that we'll eventually come to in Hebrews, when we get back to Hebrews, is it tells us that those that God loves, He chastens. Right? If you love your children, you discipline your children. God loves us, He disciplines us. He disciplined Jonah. He put him in the midst of a situation that could bring him to death. More than once, in a storm and in a sandstorm, in the middle of the desert. But God did it to teach Jonah something he needed to learn. And that is, who are you, O man, to withstand God? God is sovereign. He doesn't need our help. He calls us, invites us in to his work, but he doesn't need us to second-guess him or advise him. How many times in the Old Testament do we see this? Who were my advisors, God says. Who advised me? Who was there when I made the oceans and the the earth and all of creation? Who was there when I did those things? No one. I don't need your input, Jonah. What I need you to do is what I've called you to do. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare the message I give you to say. And God shows his mercy even to the chief of sinners So that even once more, we can see a picture of Paul, the chief of sinners, who's given the the mantle, if you will, of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. My friends, as we read Jonah, it's a great little book that we can tell our kids about. But realize there's a lot there for us to consider as well. Amen.